various versions of scripture and Bible translations available to us today. One you may not have heard of is one referred to as the Jefferson Bible, created by and named after our nation's first Secretary of State and third president, Thomas Jefferson. The Jefferson Bible is the signature material artifact of Jefferson's rogue system of religious skepticism and unbelief. While while Jefferson granted Jesus' significance in terms of his moral teaching and his moral character, he refused to believe the more miraculous claims of Scripture, particularly those related to Jesus' divinity. So, keeping this in mind, Jefferson set out over the course of many days to fashion a version of Scripture more accommodating, more to his liking. Taking a penknife in one hand and his Bible in the other, Jefferson set about physically cutting away what he determined to be the more fickle parts of the gospel narratives, the miraculous accounts of Jesus' doing in all of history. Jefferson's account, perhaps most strikingly, removes some of the integral parts of our faith, some of the bedrock of our confession. Most strikingly, Jefferson's account in his Bible, the Jefferson Bible, includes no mention of Jesus' resurrection. So while the resurrection would be central to our confession and historical orthodoxy and the Christian faith throughout time and across space, Jefferson didn't give it so much as a nod. His account of the faith instead included the rather anticlimactic observation that the disciples rolled a great stone in front of the sepulcher, and then they departed. The end. Upon Upon first hearing of Jefferson's rather extreme attempt to make Scripture make do, you and I may be tempted to look down our noses at him. It's easy to make a claim for Scripture that it can stand for itself, that the Bible can stand alone, that we need do nothing to it to make it work. And yet, it's my contention today that, or I guess I wonder, if we might not be more like Jefferson than we're readily willing to admit. Functionally, in our approach to Scripture, while we might not be so bold as to take a penknife to our Bibles, theoretically, our posture towards Scripture may look a lot like his. Scripture includes difficult sayings, hard things to swallow, And it includes a lot that's more palatable to our earthly sensibilities. But the question is, what do we do with the parts of Scripture that we tend to disagree with? What do we do with the parts of Scripture that we find more difficult to obey, to assent, whether intellectually or morally? What do we do with the difficult parts of the Bible? Functionally, the question for us today in this moment is, will we grant the authority the sufficiency of Scripture for our day-to-day lives. When we open the Scriptures, we're faced time and again with hard sayings, aren't we? I can accept the blessing of having received a gift. But when I take my Bible, I open it up and I learn there that it is actually more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so I become a sort of weird re-gifter, trying to figure out how to navigate Scripture's call to receive blessing through giving I can love my neighbors. In fact, I delight in doing so. 
We've met many of them over by Tufts University. Love being amongst our neighbors. And yet, I open my Bible there in the command to love my enemies and pray for those who persecute me, I find more difficult. Rubs against the grain of what seems or feels right. I've spent my entire life, and you've probably spent your entire life, in academics and sports, the workplace, life in general, a foot race with a kid trying to be first. We're taught to be the best. First place is what we must have, and yet we open the scripture, and what we learn there is that it's actually the first who will be last, and the last who will be made first. Our passage today is one that's accompanied by similar difficulty. It includes hard sayings, and yet we'll find that our embrace of the core concept of what Jesus is teaching lies at the heart of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Christ. And we'll see through our passage today that as we prioritize the call to love and follow God above all, we'll find true and everlasting life. As we prioritize the call to follow and love God above all, we'll find true and everlasting life life. So if you have a Bible today, turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one underneath a seat in front of you. Welcome to use that today. And if you don't own a Bible, we as a church would love to give you one. There's a stack of Bibles on a table in the back. You can be sure to stop by on your way out. If you're brand new to reading the Bible today, as you turn to the book of Matthew, it's the first book of what we call the New Testament. And as you turn there, the larger numbers you'll find there are chapter numbers, and the smaller numbers are verses. We'll be in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 42. Matthew 10, 34 through 42. Read along silently as I read our passage aloud. Verse 34, do not think that I have come, Jesus speaking, to bring peace to the earth. I have come, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake find it. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Through our passage today, we'll see a sort of framework for what life looks like as followers, as disciples of Jesus. And we'll see that under three different headings. First, we'll see the fight against sin, the fight against sin. Second, we'll see the fight for our affections, for our affections. And third, we'll see a just reward for Christ's welcome. A just reward for Christ's welcome. 
It isn't difficult at this part here at the end of Matthew chapter 10 to sort of paint the juxtaposition we see between Jesus' earthly ministry to this point and what he is now teaching, saying to his disciples. Jesus' interactions with those around him up to this point in the narrative have largely been characterized by his compassion and by his mercy. He is healed and he has set free. He has come in close to those who feel down and out, to those most often overlooked and those downcast. Later, Jesus will see, he will make the claim that he has come to serve and not to be served. And what we see of Jesus in the Matthew narrative up to this point accords with that truth. And yet we find the overarching narrative of Matthew, of the gospel account here, quite striking. Because all told, Jesus' earthly ministry is the incoming and the outbreaking of God's kingdom here on earth. Remember his announcement in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus then is ushering in an entirely new perspective and interpretation of reality. The kingdom that Jesus is preaching and bringing about is altogether different than what the populace, the culture here, is used to. And for his followers, those closest to him, the life that he is now calling them to is one of costly sacrifice, one of self-denial amid the looming threat of persecution. You'll remember, he said to expect suffering, he told them. Expect some amount of rejection. Be ready for persecution. Be prepared to move from one town to the next because you will not be welcomed and received everywhere. In the core of the struggle, the reason they and we face difficulty in this life, the reason there is any tension at all is unquestionably because of the presence of sin in our world. The person and work of Jesus Christ flies in the face of those content to live with themselves at the center of the universe. And this is the essence of sin. Loving things, loving people more than we love God, putting ourselves at the center of our universe. The inbreaking then of God's kingdom and the freedom to be found in the gospel for all who receive it presents a radical reorientation of priorities and a displacement of self and all other lesser gods from the throne of one's heart. I've heard this likened before to a solar system, perhaps a timely illustration in light of photos coming from James Webb's telescope this week. Imagine a solar system with your life or my life at the center of it. Everything's spinning around, trying to maintain pace around us and our desires, our inclinations and our longings. And yet life as a follower of Jesus as a disciple of Jesus, demands that the center of the solar system not simply be removed, but that it be replaced. And God becomes for us the all-satisfying center of the universe. And our lives settle, as it were, in orbit around him and his call and his purposes. That sort of displacement can be profoundly disorienting, right? especially for those who, if you've been like me, have been immersed and wrapped up in life that is self-centric. It can be profoundly disorienting for anyone who has spent much of life preoccupied with themselves 
And this is the reality that Jesus is getting after here at the end of Matthew chapter 10. In verse 34, he tells them, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword. Jesus has not come to reaffirm the status quo. He's come to shake things up. He's not leaving things as they were. Certainly, Jesus here is not saying, and what we know from the rest of Scripture, Jesus is not saying that he comes to bring no peace at all. What is most true about Jesus is that he can, that he is able to, and that he will bring ultimate peace. Certainly, he's not saying that he comes to bring no peace at all. He is helping bring forth a world in which, to borrow from Tolkien, a world in which everything sad will come untrue. Jesus is about peace, but he's not about peace only. So while Jesus' mission and his earthly kingdom-minded ministry can largely be conceived of under the umbrella or under the banner of peace, we are reminded that the sort of peace Jesus ultimately ushers in is obtained, at least in some sense, through strife. The sort of peace Jesus ushers in and brings is brought about by a particular sort of violence. In order to bring ultimate peace, Jesus must first cure what ails us. In order for the patient to be healthy, the disease must be cut away. To bring peace, then, Jesus makes war. To offer salvation and to offer salvation freely as he does, Jesus engages in a battle against sin. Jesus' life and his message are fundamentally opposed to sinful disobedience, to our lives being lived with our sinful inclinations at the center. Offense, then, is inherent to his coming. Offense is inherent in his message. This reality creates strife and division not only within us as we sort these things out, but also, as the passage indicates, among us. One commentator writes, Prince of Peace, though Jesus was and is, the world will so violently reject him and his reign that men and women will divide over him. So you may be asking at this juncture, and it would be proper to, what is it that is so intrinsic to Jesus' identity and the gospel message? What is it that's so intrinsic to the gospel? that causes it to be so divisive in a world like ours. We find in the gospel message a series of divine pronouncements, declarations made by God through his word concerning the creation, meaning of life, concerning man's fundamental problem, God's gracious solution to the problem. And we find commentary of life in a world that's to come, You might think of it in two ways. We consider the gospel together. First, we consider it from sort of a macro level, a wide-angle lens, and we see the gospel unfolding in real time. God has created the world and all that is in it. Creation has fallen on account of sin. Creation hurdles toward redemption through Jesus Jesus Christ's work on the cross. Then we see the consummation of creation and the coming of a new creation the new heavens, and the new earth. 
In many ways, this overarching narrative, this wide-angle macro lens of the gospel through creation and fall, redemption and consummation is the storyline of our Bibles. It's what we see as we pick up and we read the Word of God. It's this macro, cosmic-level narrative unfolding. And yet, most expressly and important for us, the gospel can also be viewed through a narrow lens as well. You see, God doesn't just create in general. God has created man, and he has created woman in his image. And he has created them with divinely oriented purpose. Infused them with divinely oriented purpose. Isaiah 43, verses 6 and 7, clue us into the meaning of life, provide an answer to the age-old question. It reads, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Listen, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made, Human beings then, you and I, were created in God's image and for God's glory. Yet we find in Genesis 3 and 4 that everything has gone awry, that we have failed in keeping with our intended purpose, that the first human beings, our first parents, Adam and Eve, are given specific boundaries, a sort of bare minimum to which they must consent and obey the Lord concerning. They rebel and sin against God, spiraling humanity as a whole into an abyss of disobedience, sin patterns that warrant now the wrath of God, for a holy God cannot abide with such evil. Romans 3 tells us that no one has avoided the curse. All are affected. Everyone has sinned against God. Later, Paul will remind us of the seriousness of our plight, that the cost or the wages of sin is death. You can already see in just a smattering of the gospel account how this type of message could cause offense. While in hearing it, there might be some amount of strife or division or disagreement. Who wants to be informed that the standard of morality is far more perfect than we could have imagined and that we are failing miserably at keeping to it? Who desires the indictment? to be told that they are lost in sin, who longs to stand in the way of God's wrath. I'd venture to say that very few people in and of themselves are inviting this type of reflection about their lives and the state of their souls. And yet, we're confronted with the reality that accords with what Scripture says is true, that all is not as it should be, that sin has marred our world We are unable, on account of it, to fulfill our God-ordained purpose. We need to be reconciled to him. And as scandalous, as divisive as the reality of our sin sickness is, God's gracious solution to it is more scandalous still. Left to ourselves and immersed in our sin, we are wholly unable to save ourselves. Yet Romans 5.8 tells us that even while we were yet sinners, that Christ died for us. The Apostle Paul tells us that Christ, who lived a perfect life of obedience, that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin for us, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf on the cross. 
In exchange for our sin, Christ has given to us his perfect life and righteousness before God, such that his righteousness and his perfect life are now credited to us, completely unearned, unmerited, a free gift. Our futile efforts to become righteous, our efforts to save ourselves, have been gloriously overshadowed by Christ's perfect righteousness and his substitutionary sacrificial death. After his death, Christ was buried. Three days later, he rose from the grave. And after some time had passed, Christ ascended to heaven, where he sits at the right hand of the Father, from whence he will come again to judge the living and the dead, and he will reign in glory, a blessed consummation to the gospel narrative, setting all things aright. Thus, it's through Christ's life and his death and his resurrection that we can now be reconciled to God. We have an opportunity to fulfill our God-ordained purpose for living. And it's through faith in this message, faith in Jesus' work on our behalf and turning from our sin that we now receive God's free gift of salvation. So why rehearse that message? Why rehearse the gospel in a place like this among those who, for the large part, have probably already heard it? For believers in the room, the best reason for rehearsing the gospel message in a setting like this is because I don't believe that there's ever a time that you don't need to rehearse it. That in this moment, hearing the gospel again is the very best thing for us because the gospel for us in this moment means as much to us now as it did in the moment that we believed. But there's never a time we don't need to be reminded of it. And then there's the commonality in the setting like this with this many people that there are some among us who have not heard this message, this gospel message. And the overarching reason for sharing it in a setting like this is to make known what are the plain truths of our faith. What are the simple realities? What are the simple truths and beliefs we believe about Jesus Christ? And pertaining to our passage today, this is the message, the gospel is the message that sits at the heart of the division that Jesus is speaking about. This is the kind of sword that he brings. Though they can agree about much else and have a lot in common, a believing person and an unbelieving person disagree at this juncture. Concerning these issues, related to Scripture's assessment of our sinful state and God's sovereign, gracious solution to it. Downstream from the gospel in the Christian life, there are any number of tangential issues, maybe ethical, moral, moral conclusions drawn from the Christian faith and Christian principles that can be applied that chafe against more popular sentiments. And there's this palpable sense that as believers engage the world around them, as they love and serve and dialogue with those who disagree, who do not share the same beliefs, that believers might not ever feel truly at home among them on account of Jesus' radical message. And this is to be expected, he says. And not expected in some broad or general sense that, hey, maybe there may be some disagreement out there, but that division may extend into our personal lives, down into otherwise congenial settings, even as we find amid relationships at our own dinner tables. Verses 35 through 37 
For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. It's a hard saying. While we ought not read this, supposing this is Christ's sole purpose in coming, that he has only come to set family members against one another, we get a better grasp of what Christ is intending in the teaching by considering such division as an implication or an entailment of the gospel. The gospel yields this sort of division in some settings. The teaching here from Jesus is not that family is unimportant. From the whole of Scripture, we gather that it is increasingly important to us, especially as believers. It's not the teaching here. Rather, Jesus is putting his finger on an issue that is near to our hearts and exposes our hearts in such a way. way. And what Jesus is teaching here fundamentally is that belief in the gospel, the belief in the gospel is emphatically consequential. The belief in the gospel is utterly consequential. That it yields and it reaps as we apply it and express it. Perhaps the specific situation Jesus describes here is a bit of your story. Jesus indicates quite plainly that belief in him and his message can cause division, can cause strife, even among families. Perhaps your own belief has put you at arm's length from friends and loved ones who are closest to you. And in this moment, with this passage before us, we would be foolish not to acknowledge that reality. But friend, allow me in the moment to remind you that the Holy Spirit has given you as a believer as comfort for that specific type of confusion, for that specific type of hurt for that specific type of struggle. And not only that, but the body of Christ for you, now believer, arm's length away from your unbelieving family member, the body of Christ for you plays a pivotal role in providing for you a place to lay your head. Even as you continue to pray for those family relationships to be restored, for the salvation of your loved ones, even as you weep over what's been lost and plead with God that he would restore it, that the body of Christ has been given you, your brothers and sisters have been given to you, your family in Christ has been given to you to bolster you up as you pray for and share with your loved ones. For others, following Christ threatens to put you at odds with perhaps people in your workplace or on campus or neighbors. Certainly, this has been the case throughout history and in other parts of the world, but we find amid the difficulty of those situations that a promise is held out for us. And in giving this promise, Jesus also gives us an opportunity, a chance to take stock of our priorities in life, to ask the question, as Augustine would say, whether or not our loves in this life are rightly ordered. Are our loves in this life rightly ordered? Verse 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me 
is not worthy of me. Again, from the broader scope of Scripture, we understand that the call here is not to forsake love for one's family. Scripture testifies to and places great significance on family units and our respective roles within them. Rather, we find Jesus using familiar relations as a sort of test case concerning our loves, our affections. We love our families well. We exhaust our efforts to serve and love and pray for them if they're unbelieving, yet if presented with a situation, and this gets at the heart of what Jesus is teaching, if presented with the situation in which one must choose to affirm the sinful choices of unbelieving family members or choose Christ, the clear call here is that we stay with Christ. The call in our lives is to lean in close with unbelieving family members, to walk alongside and with and love and serve. But if given the opportunity or faced with a choice to choose between those two options, the choice here is to stay with Christ. So we stay with Christ. And we cash in our hopes on the promise that as we acknowledge him, that he will acknowledge us. That as we trust him, that he will not forsake us. And we grow in those moments and in those seasons, we grow in the confidence that no one is too far gone. That no one is beyond the reach of his grace and his loving kindness. So we see in the passage here that Jesus is greatly concerned about what or who sits at the pinnacle, the apex, the high point of our affections. Who or what is at the center of the solar system? And having first used the family as sort of a test case, he then asserts that anyone who does not take up their cross and follow him is not worthy of him either. And the cross, we're reminded in this particular context, is not a welcome sight. In this context, in this time, in these places, it's a tool or device of torture, execution, and punishment. The command then to take up one's cross is not an opportunity one would jump at, given other options. And we're reminded, too, that within the context of the gospel, the cross not only represents physical death, but the cross also represents the ultimate act of self-sacrifice, as Jesus comes and gives his life as a ransom for many. And he's calling us into the same sort of life. It was the ultimate form of self-denial, displacing self from the center of one's interest. Jesus then provides the perfect example of what it means to lay one's life down for others, to cease prioritizing self over God and other people. And in his exhortation to take up one's cross, Jesus is now inviting us into a life that exudes what we might call gospel humility. Gospel humility. One author says that true gospel humility is not thinking more of myself, as if I were boasting, and it's not thinking less of myself, which could become self-effacing, but it's thinking of myself less. It's not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it's thinking of myself less. 
It's like a matter of quantity versus quality. I don't need to hoist myself up or beat myself down. I just need to think of myself less. And so in worship, how this is framed, praise and adulation are directed more steadfastly toward God. In terms of service, my days are now spent being wrung out, as it were, for the good of others and for the glory of God. We're thinking of ourselves less. We're picking up our cross and we're following Jesus. We're denying every selfish inclination we may have for his sake. True gospel humility, the writer goes on to say, means I stop, listen, I stop connecting every experience and every discussion, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. This is the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. We'll see in a few chapters as we continue throughout the book of Matthew that Jesus actually circles back around to this particular teaching of taking up one's cross and following him. Jesus is urging us then. He's welcoming us into a life of glorious self-forgetfulness, a life that though it will not be marked by ease or a lack of suffering, will provide sufficient context wherein we can love God supremely above all and serve others without any reservation. D.A. Carson notes that the call that Jesus gives here is not to gloom. This isn't some sort of miserable existence that we're dreaming up, that I need to continually deny myself and put down my own interests and continually push myself aside such that when I leave church every Sunday, I walk into Somerville and Cambridge, the most miserable person on the face of the earth. The world needs your joy. The world needs your joy. And true joy, everlasting joy, comes through self-forgetfulness. The call here is not to gloom. It's to discipleship. It's to following Jesus, who grants reward and satisfaction and true life, true joy, on the other side. It's within this context and in light of this reality and moving out under this banner of Jesus' everlasting life and true joy, the true joy that he offers, that Jesus now at the end of the passage offers both a warning and a promise. A warning and a promise. Verse 39, Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it. It's a warning. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And the promise is that whoever loses his life for my sake, he'll find it. Jesus is saying that those who in this life find everything they have been looking for, everything they thought would satisfy, have spent their lives obtaining every earthly pleasure and every earthly good, will in the age to come have nothing to show for it. Yet those who deny themselves, who exhaust themselves in service and love toward others, those who lose their life, Find true joy and everlasting life in him. The selfless acts and self-sacrificial deeds for Christ's sake will not ultimately go unnoticed. Those who waste their lives in endless wandering will never find what it is they're searching for. But those who count the cost and find following Jesus worth it and forsake all lesser loves will find all that they've ever needed. 
There's a sort of addendum to his last point and a fitting conclusion to this particular discourse with his followers. Jesus offers to the disciples encouragement. Though life as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, we've learned, will necessarily entail strife and some amount of suffering, those particular aspects of discipleship are not ever-present, and they're not ever-applicable. You have not signed up, believer, for only ever-suffering. In some cases, some places, in some situations, those who carry forth the grand work of gospel proclamation and engage in the task of making disciples will actually be welcomed. We have a category for that, for Jesus' gospel being accepted and welcomed in the world. What is more, we have an incredible part to play in doing the welcoming Verses 40 through 42, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. 42, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Jesus is now preparing his disciples for ministry without him. As the narrative progresses and the book of Matthew unfolds, we'll find that the disciples are prepared and equipped for ministry without Jesus alongside. And he wants them to know in this moment, and for us too, that as vigorously as some oppose Christ and his message, as vigorously as some oppose Christ and his message, it is that vigorously, as vigorously, that some people will welcome it. And with joy, they'll accept it. And with joy, they'll accept those who bring it. And those who do the welcoming in such instances will receive a good and just reward on account of their hospitality. We note a beautiful interconnectedness between us and Jesus in this passage, and Jesus and the Father, that acts of love and service toward those who are engaged in, in the work of gospel proclamation rolls up, as it were, into acts of love or acts of service and love toward Jesus and toward the Father. And so any demonstration of hospitality or welcoming, any demonstration of love and service toward those who are doing gospel work is actually a demonstration of love and welcoming and hospitality toward Jesus and toward the Father. What a beautiful concept. And Jesus here is sure at the end of things to let them know that no social status impinges upon this reality. And so we see these categories of a prophet and a righteous person and the little ones. And Jesus is saying whether he honors the prophet or he honors a righteous person or the insignificant one who's done the very least thing on earth for the kingdom, whatever tier we find ourselves rewarding and welcoming and encouraging and being hospitable toward, that counts. That this sort of gospel hospitality, this sort of welcome of Christ and his message is not dependent upon someone's accolades. That from the prophet to the righteous person to the little one, whether it's a cup of water or it's a place to stay, financial, monetary support, whatever it may be, that this is worthy of a proper, a just reward. Given this text in this moment with you, 
found it proper and appropriate to speak out of personal experience regarding this matter to you, Hope Fellowship Church. My wife and I have been here a, a mere three months now. It's hotter than y'all said it would be. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but I'm in position to be able to speak to this sort of gospel welcome and gospel hospitality And I'm in position to be able to exhort and hopefully encourage by just simply saying that you as a church do this extremely well. It's not difficult at all on Sunday morning to walk in this place and see the fulfillment of what's going on in this passage. You just have to open your eyes and then you're done, right? And that's the kind of ethos that the Lord has blessed this church with. And that's the kind of, kind of environment that the Lord has blessed this place with. And I know you experience too, but I want you to hear it from me. As one who, with his wife, spent the first like month and a half, we were here at like every bakery with gift cards in the Boston area. Like we're eating way too many things and we experienced the wonder of market basket through gift cards. Like, right, this was our welcome into this. Okay, I'm overstating that probably, but uh, it changed our lives, right? But we got to experience this firsthand and I was reminded in dealing with this passage this week, man, they need to hear it. You need to hear it you're doing this extremely well, and the, the encouragement here and the, I guess, commendation, the exhortation from me to you is let's keep going. Let's keep going. In the same way that we would welcome those who labor for Christ's sake, we have this morning an opportunity to consider and welcome Christ's own instruction. So as we move and move into the close of our service and enter into a time of reflection over Jesus' difficult teaching here, there might be at least a few ways we could respond. So in a moment, we'll take a moment of silence just with ourselves and consider Jesus' teaching here as a means of response. And in these moments, we might, one, consider in these moments what or who it is that is uppermost in our affections. What it is in my life that I'm loving more than I'm loving God, that I'm worshiping more than I'm worshiping God. Has something displaced God in my affections? Might be a question we asked this morning. Number two, we might consider unbelieving friends and family members. It's a reality that in a room this size that some of you stand at arm's length from those who you disagree with over faith. That is not a weird thing here. Normal. And in these moments we have to reflect on Jesus' hard teaching, we might ask the Lord how we could lean in and serve and love well even as we remain steadfast in our convictions, and we might pray earnestly for their salvation. Third, you might consider in these moments Jesus Christ. The reason we rehearse a message as plain, as simple, as fundamental to the Christian faith, the reason we rehearse and and reiterate the gospel so much is because we desire earnestly for all to believe it. This morning, you may come in with massive questions about things as as broad as existence, questions more near to the heart of the Christian faith about Jesus Christ, his identity, and the claims that he's made in this life. You may have questions about the local church and how this operates. You may have missed my welcome and have questions about why there are colors on the wall. I'm just kidding. But in your question asking, and in your searching, your wandering, I want you to know that those Lines of question and even lines of argumentation are welcome here. And in these moments, as we reflect on Jesus' teaching, you might pick up a Connect card and jot down a question for us. 
Or you might catch me at the back of the room or someone that you know here at Hope or a friend who brought you who's a believer and begin asking them questions as well. Here in the next few moments, you have an opportunity to consider Jesus Christ and the goodness, the graciousness of the gospel that he's held out for us. Let's spend some time reflecting together and I'll pray for us.